innovation, how does it apply to a crop that first cultivated 4,000 years ago, and yet here in 2020 might be the next agribusiness revolution, providing incomes for farmers, producers, and ultimately to the benefit of industrial customers like big corporations and everyday people just like you and me. Ready to hear about it? Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and muser of metacognition, David Peterson. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome to Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. We've got a special treat today as I get a chance to talk with Justin Fisher, who is CEO of Risk Scout. Now, as you'll hear in the interview, I have a real soft spot for farmers. I'll talk a little bit about it uh, as you uh, listen to the podcast, but um, these are individuals who uh, not only are in the soil, uh, if you will, but they also have all of the challenges of of any type of business relative to producing a, a product or service and then having to deliver that. But yet most of us still think about them in very, oh, let's call it non-innovative terms. Uh, you know, they're, you know, <laughs> you, you might even picture a farmer still out there with an old style, you know, tractor and, uh, you know, hand, hand putting <laughs> plants into the ground and so forth. Nothing could be further for the truth. They are incredibly automated in the tools that they have available to them. But yet they still face challenges that most of us, as we think about business, I do a lot of work in financial services. We really don't have to worry that much about how much it rains, but a farmer does. So anyway, I think you'll be fascinated by this interview. So uh, let's take a listen. Well, good morning. Justin, how are you doing? Hey, good morning, David. I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, listen, couldn't, couldn't be better. It's fall and, uh, you know, we've got some cooler weather. But I'm really excited about you being on the Innovation Driven Growth podcast this morning. First of all, tell our IDG listeners just a little, you know, that 20,000 foot view of, of Justin Fisher, a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I'm native Texan, um, you know, from South Texas, but, but live in Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, pretty much lived the lifestyle, you know, all my life, uh, hunting, fishing, you know, uh, that whole thing. And then went to the University of Texas and fell in the tech industry. And, um, you know, a little bit past that, I got into the banking and spent the last 20 years uh, essentially working in the banking field, banking software. Awesome. And, and of course, you and I do know each other because we both uh, worked at Q2 in an overlapping uh, role. And uh, yeah. that, that's an e-banking uh, software vendor based in Austin, Texas. And uh, they, you know, they've done amazingly well as a company. And I've moved on. You've moved on. You may not know. I don't know if you and I ever talked about my background in, in agriculture. Now, I got to be very careful. I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida, so I did not grow up <laughs> around <laughs> agriculture. But when I started Gold Leaf Technologies, I was in this little town in Georgia, Hey Hira, and the president of the local bank where I worked was a huge agribusinessman 
primarily in tobacco. So he would take me you know, out to the fields. And I learned about the whole process from growing, you know, a, a transplantable little plants from seedlings to, to fertilizer to, you know, tractor. I mean, I, I really was out there. We were in our suits and business shoes, you know, walking around fields, uh, went to him with caring tobacco. I mean, I really got into that with him and understood it all. So I do have a good feel for uh, agribusiness, but I understand you also have a background in farming, even though you've been in this fintech role. Tell us about your background from a farming standpoint. Yeah, so um, down in South Texas, uh, not too far from Corpus Christi, we had a family farm you know, for the last four generations. Uh, my grandfather was, you know, uh, um, deep in the, the the hard work, you know, kind of mentality. Uh, you know, even up until his 80th birthday, he was still doing about an acre garden what he called a garden, you know, about an acre. acre of, uh, an acre garden? Yeah. Acre? Yeah, right. Holy cow. Like most of but, j- for those of you that don't quite envision an acre, that's 43,000 square feet. Just saying. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and so we, you know, we spent a lot of time at, you know, out, out there on the farm. Um, now, you know, we haven't produced any produce probably for the last, you know, 12 years. And, you know, the reason's the same as, as most farmers these days. In fact, last year was the worst year on record for yeah. small business farmers, Ooh. right? Didn't get a ton of subsidies, of, right. you know, just really had a challenge. And so um, I grew up in that space. And, you know, the interesting part about where that changed recently or how that came up is I had, was talking to my dad in December, right around the time that the U.S. was was approving industrial hemp. And he started hearing about hemp and he said, hey, we want to take 80 acres we have and, and you know, do hemp. And it was quite, quite an interesting thing, David, because, um, you know, I've, I've actually been in this industry for a little bit now and realized what that means. And yeah. he just thought it meant, you know, let's get some seed and, you know, put that in the ground and, and we're good to go. Right. right. So, you know, we're lately we're, that, planting, that's we're planting corn, we're planting soybeans with crop, plant it. Exactly. It, yeah. And from his perspective, you know, like like other small business farmers, it's like, hey, this crop, um, you know, for the last four years, it's made a lot of money you know, in, in whether it's CBD or textiles or whatever, you know, uh, has happened in the boom. Um, and so he just looked at it like, hey, this could this could really, you know, provide a, a revenue source, and right. help, help make some profit, right? You know, at what t- one time they were selling, uh, you know, an acre, you know, there were reports up to like $30,000 an acre where, you know, cotton's $500, you know? Wow. So um, hemp, is, it's sort of a, a crop du jour, right? There's a lot of people talking about hemp, and, and I do want to get into that. But hemp's been around for a long, long time. I mean, you, you go back into almost biblical times. I mean, hemp has been, you know, a crop that's been around a long time. People who are not really aware of, of hemp tend to think of it in the same vein as marijuana. It's like that's, you know, people were smoking hemp or, you know, whatever, whatever. So just, just real quickly sort of differentiate hemp versus marijuana from a crop standpoint. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So hemp has been grown uh, for 4,000 years. Um, they trace the genetics back that way, but but it's the same cannabis plant um, that produces marijuana. Now, in our more recent genetics, we are able to separate and have a, a genetic version that can grow low THC, right? And the total THC is actually the psychoactive component, right? And so Basically, you know, CBD can rise, you know, for CBD uh, oils and things like that. And THC will stay low. And that's the that's the real difference between, you know, marijuana and hemp is as THC rises, you know, really, really over 5%. But I mean, I know a lot of uh, THC farmers will look at 50 to 50% 
So really high up there. That's where the psychoactive, you know, sort of that's, gets you that, high. Right? That's what you're going to the 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 bud store in Colorado to get. You're going exactly. you're going to get that kind of whether it's edible or smoking, eat, you know, whatever, whatever. So fifty percent would be sort of the target for a marijuana in terms of what they would be looking for to make it a viable product for its purpose. Yeah, it depends it, on the testing, but yeah, somewhere between fifteen and fifty percent, way way above where. Yeah, so let's let's for him. Yeah, let's talk about that. So just to level set for everybody, hemp the the standard for growing hemp that THC max is what? So so right now the USDA has set that as 0.3%. 0.3. So just to draw the difference, 50% is that the marijuana store and these hemp plants 0.3%. So clearly uh, while there is some trace of of THC in there, it's obviously not a a, a psychoactive uh, experience if you were to consume it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you really, m- most people kind of agree that 5% or higher would be where someone would start to recognize that. But to give you a corollary, that's kind of like saying, you know, you get drunk or start to feel, you know, a feeling off of decaf coffee, right? A couple of cups of decaf <laughs> coffee or O'Doul's or something like that. Right. 5% is really low, um, you know, e- even still. And, and so a lot of people across the country believe it should at least be one or 2%. And I'll tell you, David, like I was actually just out on a farm on Friday and, um, you know, talking to these, these different farmers in Texas, it's incredibly difficult to keep the percentage under 0.3%. And the reason is as the plant gets stressed, um, it, it, it grows in THC, THC, you know, gets higher. And so stress can happen from, you know, ants under the surface eating the roots, right? It can happen from the fact that these fields for, for CBD are grown in, in what's called feminized, right? So they're all flowers and not you know, the male side of the species. And so, you know, when that happens, sometimes they, they actually hermaphrodite and that causes stress in the plant. In fact, there was a little rumor I heard recently about some of the guys in Colorado that grow it for, for the other side, they would have deer, you know, come and chew on the plant. Well, that stresses the plant. In fact, they're actually trying to figure out ways to like recreate that, right. That natural occurrence. Right. So it's right. They, it's, they, they, the, the ones that want the high want it to be stressed to get the THC right. higher. So, and, and again, I, I've always said that farmers are the most incredible businessmen. They take all the money they have in the world and bet it on the weather. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so weather's a big part of it, right? Weather's like, a big like, part like, of it. So stress, yeah. but this is fascinating when you and I were chatting the other day that I was thinking that low water, right. A drought type conditions would be stressed, but it doesn't, that's not necessarily, it could be the other way as well. It could be any number. Actually, in Oregon too, they had they had stress from just over amount of rain because the plants sat in the field for so long, and then they also had mold develop. And so uh, there's so many you know challenges a farmer has to face. And, and right, you know, I guess to roll back for a second, David, if if you think about it, there's never been a crop that you can put in the ground that is legal when you put it in the ground and can grow illegal while it's out there, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and again, the tobacco industry is not that. It doesn't have the psycho, psychotropic effect or whatever like a marijuana plant does. But there are, like uh, I mentioned earlier about the tobacco, is they would, uh, FDA would overfly these fields. If they thought the farmer was growing more tobacco than they were legally allowed to sell, they would come in with tractors and plow it up. Well, t- a month later, there's a hailstorm in South Georgia and it wipes out half of this crop, which, you know, which he would have had more tobacco to be able to make his pounds. So, this whole idea of how you monitor, let's just do this. Tell me about the legal framework of farming hemp. Obviously, we've discussed there's this point three, and the farmer has to sort of keep under that. But what's sort of legally controlling this, this whole hemp farming uh, situation? 
Right. So, so, so just to roll back real quick in 1920s, you know, we had prohibition of marijuana, which, which just included the hemp plant. And at that time there wasn't enough perspective on how to separate it. You know, they just, threw, really it, they just threw it in with marijuana. Hey, that's part of marijuana prohibited. Exactly. And a lot of people don't realize that even the most conservative states and conservative farms had at least an acre of hemp because rope was so important to the farming and agricultural perspective. Right. Even so much that like back to the, you know, Christopher Columbus and a lot of the explorers that came over brought hemp because they needed the rope for their, their boats. Right. And so right. it was a, an incredibly important industrial crop, regardless of whether you were producing other crops. But because of the prohibition, you know, we, we lost a lot of that over the years. Even one more thing, Henry Ford built a hemp car back in the, you know, in his early Stop. days. Yeah, he a did. Hemp there's, there's car. Wait, 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 wait. Does that mean it was made out of hemp or that it was, it was it was motored, powered by hemp? Oh no, it was it was made. The fiberglass body, most of the components were were made out of made uh, from hemp. You know, made from hemp. And How about that? his point was, you know, kind of that self-sustainability, but look what yeah. I can do with this this crop. Yeah. Well, now we get to a place where it's exciting. 2018 Farm Bill uh, was signed and essentially established industrial hemp as its own. Um, you know, takes it off to Schedule One where marijuana is and pushes it into, you know, governed by the USDA, right? And the USDA has done a great job of saying, hey, here's here's the rules. And then the states have to, you know, ap- approve their own licensing and agricultural um, approval okay. of the industrial hemp. But they submit a plan to the USDA. And as long as, you know, the, the basics are, you know, background checks for, for people, you know, they can't have a substance, um, you know, felony for sure. the last 10 years. And then essentially this 0.3%. Is key. Now there are states ahead of before that that were called the pilot states, and they'll be converting over into the USDA. But now we have 46 states who have adopted the USDA, you know, 46. and federal. Yeah, 46 wow. states. Okay. You know, a lot of what what gets the the press is the, the marijuana, right? Is recreational right. medical, which you know we're at 33 states medically there, and then recreational 11, and there's four even on the docket for November. That is definitely very different. That's the psychoactive side. 46 legal states. I mean, Texas is a legal state, for example, started licensing in March and we're already at, um, well, sorry, uh, really April with COVID, but we're already at 900 licensees in the state. And a licensee is a farmer or is that an organization or somebody that's tangentially tied into hemp hemp production? It's actually all, all of them. There's about four types. There's cultivator, processor, transporter, and then there's tester as well. So all of those licenses exist. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's fascinating. So it, where I am in Georgia, I sit on the board of directors of a small community bank, a citizens community bank. They have ag customers who are looking at hemp. I think the the draw to hemp, Justin, you would agree is, is that as a cash crop, perhaps other than tobacco, it's significantly more money per acre than, than these guys growing soybeans or, or corn or even cotton. It, would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, it is. It isn't as much as it used to be when it first came out, but there's definitely still significant, at least five to 10 X, you know, some of those uh, commodity crops. Right, right. So obviously customers of Citizens Community Bank are saying, hey, we want to grow hemp. And uh, I was just at a board meeting this week and the chairman of the board and the CEO were, were having a discussion about how Georgia is it has adopted these federal the federal standards um, that you talked about. And so there, you know, it's it's moving forward so that, you know, that Georgia would have adopted these USDA standards. And then that would allow for the banking industry to start working with these four types of entities. Is that, is that accurate? 
That's accurate, actually. So, so really, the USDA got their plans done by the first of the year. In a lot of states like Texas, Georgia, Louisiana, Nebraska, a lot of huge agricultural states approved them and put them through the Department of Agriculture. But then they immediately ran into COVID. And also, the the grow season usually starts right around late spring and through to now. Really, harvesting is this is kind of late in some of the northern states. But essentially, the, a lot of those programs got stunted by COVID. Right? Texas blew blew yeah. out and did great. But what we're really going to see is a lot of those guys are, are getting their license. And then, you know, even in Texas, only about 10 percent planted. Right. Because they didn't get in time, you know, to get all the whole machine. There's working, a, the right? season. There's still a growing season they have to get into. Right. So that just right. means, you know, in 2019, we had 500 percent growth of planted acres and we didn't even have the USDA program. In 2020, mm-hmm. we'll have even higher growth. But even 21 is where all of these states will have have finally had a matured or at least a new program that's that's ready for people to plant. Yeah, let me. This is a little bit of a tangent, but in you know in the tobacco industry for years, it was an individual auction. Tobacco companies would come and, and it, you know they talk about a tobacco auctioneer as somebody that talks really fast. They actually had an auction house here in South Georgia, and I would go over there, and they had piles of tobacco that were maybe you know 150 to 220 pounds of tobacco, and it was just rows and rows as far as you could see, and they literally would auction off every pile, you know, to, to the U.S. Tobacco and uh, R.J. Reynolds and, you know, all the companies that would have there. I mean, it was really just an amazing thing to see. Nowadays, it's all under contract. So uh, R.J. Reynolds contracts with a farmer that says, okay, you're going to grow these many pounds of this type of tobacco with these qualities, this percentage of moisture and this amount of bottom leaf, middle leaf, top leaf. Those are the things that I remember in terms of how tobacco is now marketed. Help me understand and our listeners understand hemp. Is it is it a contract thing where a farmer's contracting? Are they growing and then going and trying to find a buyer? How does all that work? Yeah, there are some clearinghouses and wholesale markets like you just described, but but it's funny that you describe that parallel because it's it's what is and should be happening is that farmers in, in our Department of Agriculture in Texas, uh, our commissioner said, look, before you start growing, you know, grow a test crop, get it, get your hands on it, but always know who you're going to sell to. Always have a contract, right? Because some of the challenges is, you know, is the farmer will grab gen- general seed, maybe CBD, general uh, cannabinoid seed and plant it and then not be able to sell it or not be able to sell it for what they thought. So yeah. there, there is a contract-based process. But you know what's fascinating about it, David? This farmer I was working with um, out here, he's actually kind of following the microbrew model, which is you know grow uh, kind of rare varieties and right, then have right. a place out in the hill country where you can drink wine. I don't know if you've been in the Texas hill country, but you can drink wine oh, yeah. out here at the different vineyards and then have CBD and you know, kind of have an experience, right? Now, but let's um, back up a minute because we have mentioned CBD a couple of times. And again, it's so popular now. You can't go into any convenience store without seeing a display at the checkout about CBD and everything. Let's let's back up. So we talked about THC. That's the psychotropic, you know, a part of marijuana that gets you high. And then right. you've got hemp and we're saying, well, that has to be only 0.3. Now we're talking about CBD. What's the relationship between CBD, hemp and THC? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so there are um, lots and lots of cannabinoids, right, which are in this plant, which the human cannabinoid system, we actually have a cannabinoid system in our brains, can respond to. And we respond to it in a lot of different ways. And that is, you know, stress, de-stress, anxiety, you know, solutions, even CBG for inflammation. You know, so there's, there's not been a lot of complete medical testing on these results yet. The FDA, honestly, has been behind on that. And Justin, for some reason... 
Justin, are you telling me that that little vial that I bought in the convenience store has not been tested? I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah, Dave, Dave, I mean, you know, hopefully you're not buying the sushi there too, right? that's uh, that could be a challenge, but you know, you know, actually, it's funny. I was the, I, I visited a banker at one of these uh, the CBD shops. They were doing a, a walkthrough, and you know, first thing she said was, "I bought this CBD, and it didn't do anything for me." Mm. You, you know, that, that's fine, and it could be it could be high quality stuff, and she had no reaction to it. But you know, what's going on across the country is the CBD shops are, are pretty much like supplement shops, right? They or, or the local gas station they yeah. buy homogenized, probably heavily cut with other other substances. Right. Mm-hmm. And they, they market it as, as, you know, CBD. And unfortunately the FDA has not created guidelines right, and really specific right. rules here. And so, you know, about the only thing that they're cracking down on is, you know, you can't make a claim that CBD cures COVID or sure. CBD is a wonder drug, right? right it just, right, right, it just right. isn't. And you shouldn't make that claim. It's got and that so, disclaimer yeah. at the end of every ad. This is not intended to prevent cure or respond yeah. to any disease, to, something like that. To your point, CBD's created this really crazy landscape. Like in San Antonio, Texas, not what, seven months ago, there was a gentleman who bought a big, like probably almost a mason jar full of CBD oil from a, um, a local store. He immediately gets pulled over by a, a law enforcement officer who does the A-B test, basically, is this marijuana cannabis right, plant? And right. it is, and that's felony amount of substance. And oh he actually had gosh. the receipt. He showed them. It says it's hemp on the side of it. But CBD's everywhere. And yeah. bankers are, I'd say that probably the most common response right. from a banker is we're not going to bank it unless it's a family store that does less than, let's say, 20% revenue from something like that. So, and that's how they kind of move along. All right. So let, let me go here now. And again, I'm still drawing my comparisons to tobacco because that's that's where I know there's there's different types of tobacco. There's tobacco that's grown specifically for that becomes pipe tobacco or cigar tobacco versus cigarettes. There's different, you know, all around the world, there's different soil types and stuff. And so they grow different types of tobacco. They get blended together to make a Marlboro, you know, cigarette and, and, and so on and so forth. Is that the same for hemp? That, that, that if you said, I want to try and and grow a certain type of hemp that will yield this particular type of CBD that then becomes marketable versus I'm going to grow this hemp because it's going to create the strands that are going to make great rope. Yes, exactly. It's actually those plants, if you walked in those fields, Dave, look completely different. The CBD plant is going to be somewhere between three to six feet tall. It's going to have a huge bud, like something you'd, you know, you'd seen on the THC side, right? Big yeah. flower. Right. And that flour is going to be cut, it's going to be dried, and it's going to be processed, right? The, and, and they're, and they're literally extracting the oil out of that bud. Is that the where the oil comes from? Yeah, that's where the yeah. oil comes from. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are just taking the bud now. It's also been put into like smokable, smokable. Sure. Hemp, you know? and, and I'll stop. And I'll stop right there. If the, if the bud is what they're growing to get this, so they've got this five foot plant, and then they it's harvest time. They cut all the buds off, and all those go off to oil. What happens to the rest of the plant? Generally, the rest of the plant can be used for anything from fertilizer, you know, resowing the field. It actually, the plant actually has amazing CO2 cleaning, you know, properties. So it, it, it can be used for different things, but, but it's pretty much done with its, its growing. They season, can, right? they, har- they harrow it up to, to help enrich the soil, but they're not harvesting that for any rope uh, making. Right. Yeah. Now, contrary, if you're growing for textiles, you're getting a certain type of genetic and you're growing um, very, very dense and can be male and female, right? But they grow, it grows like bamboo. You, it look like you're walking through a bamboo field. And it's big, huge, 20 I feet, mean, tall, like, yeah, yeah, 20, 30 yeah. feet high. Yeah, because what you're, you're going for is that stock, right? Inside right. that stock is right. that fiber. Is and, and what about the flower? How is the flower different on that type of hemp? 
very little flower of any, right? See? Like very, very much at the top, not, not visible. It, Justin, this is fascinating to me. And I, I don't know if any of our listeners will literally care, but in, in tobacco, when the flower first comes out, they have to get out there quickly and get rid of it. Because if they don't get rid of the flower, then energy that the plant as it grows will put its energy into growing the flower. And of course, they don't want the flower in tobacco. They want the leaves. And so they have to get rid of that flower so that all of the, you know, all of the energy of the sun and chlorophyll and all of that is going into making leaves. And in this case, for the CBD, you want the biggest, baddest flower you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they do the yeah. same thing, right? Pr- pruning it to, to really focus. They call, uh, they call that a lot of times training, right? They train the plant. They train the plant. The, the, sure. Yeah, the sure. Now, just a quick aside here for some of you listening to this saying, wait a second, I, I don't, my business doesn't have anything to do with agriculture. Why are we, why are we talking about training the plants? What is, what is this? Okay. Let's, let's kind of bring it home in any kind of business situation. You have certain types of things that you have to do within your product line. And as you develop, as you continue down a, a, a path of working on your product or service, you may need to do the equivalent of training the plant that that is probably even without thinking about it you are constantly making improvements constantly looking for ways that you can improve to get the best possible outcome for your business now in hemp production as justin saying uh they've got to basically trim back the leaves of of the plants that they want to get cbd to make the flower grow big what in your organization what what is going on right now that might be taking up energy that might be taking up resources that you might need to trim back in order for what you really are trying to achieve to come forward to get bigger to blossom Think about this training the plant as it relates to your product or service. Hmm. Okay, so I think we're getting we're I think we're getting close to the ending of the educational part of our of our conversation. So so a farmer should be contracting with somebody who says I'm going to buy this amount of flour from you that I'm going to turn. They're going to take the farmer's flowers and turn them into CBD so that farmer is growing a specific type of hemp in order to create those flowers. Another farmer has contracted with somebody for an industrial use that, and, and they grow a certain type of hemp that's going to grow these tall bamboo looking things and, and they're selling it. So the farmer's selling it, producer or you know somebody's taking that, converting it into you know, possibly a um, sort of an intermediate, you know, type commodity, which then gets turned over to companies who convert that into specific products, either industrial or for, you know, human use for, for all of these things that we see with, with uh, CBD. And, and to fund all of that, we've got to have a banking system that, uh, that allows for these types of transactions to occur. Is that, is that a fair summary? That's accurate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So now let's turn our attention, you know, and again, the focus of uh, innovation driven growth is innovation. Um, and, you know, here we are talking about a plant that's been around for 4,000 years, but, but there's innovation, you know, that's happening around all of this. And, and banks have really struggled with marijuana related businesses. And because of federal laws, some even state banks are loath to even open an account, not just for farmers, but anybody in that whole um, supply chain. So, so let's let's come back to looking at the financial services side of this, and what's happening from the legal innovation standpoint that's allowing, you know, the kinds of production capital and you know the the financing of these types of operations to occur. 
Yeah, no, so so great. So first of all, um, the public and the banking system and our federal um, you know powers that be still have confused quite a bit of marijuana related businesses, the true THC psychoactive, with the hemp plant and with hemp right. businesses, right? CBD businesses. So there's still kind of a, I'd say like a banking reaction whiplash that hasn't come back yet to people going, oh, hemp is really different. CBD is very different. Um, it's starting to happen, but but that's still a challenge. And just to start start on that side. Um, you know, we do have all these states that are legal for THC, but federally it's still Schedule One, right? right? And this has been there's been legislation that's been tried to be pushed through, but with all the election and politics stuff, it yeah. hasn't happened, right? So banks banks in that place where they're in a legal state cannot even have federal reassurances that they're they're banking right because the right they have way. to deal with FDIC insurance and and they've got yeah. bank holding companies that are governed by the Federal Reserve. They have to follow bankruptcy. Those rules. You know, they bankruptcy is a federal issue, right? And you cannot yeah. get bankruptcy protection, and they could lose. You know, it's so mm. many issues there. But sure, on this on the the beautiful thing about the hemp, uh, industrial hemp side is that as soon as the USDA started put regulations to it, you know, we have this industrial hemp act. Um, I think no less than thirty something state agencies and the NCUA even came out and said, guys you know, we're going to give you memo guidance, you know, a bank, bank's looking for guidance, right? And they said, we're going to give you memo guidance, which is essentially these memos that say, here's what we think you should do. Um, and that's given um, that, you know, compliance officers at a bank really like that, because that gives you some basis, right. even though there's no reg yet, there's clear perspective that, for example, there's a term called SARS, suspicious activity reports, right? right. And a bank is required to submit them but when dealing with a marijuana company, they're required to submit them on every transaction, every interaction. It doesn't matter. Very, Fifty dollars. Yes, they have to SARS. submit. Yeah, submit these. Yeah. They're, they're called limited SARS. And you know, the first thing they said in the guidance is, "Hey, if you're going to do CBD and, and hemp, you do not have to file SARS unless it's legitimately suspicious, right? right. Something looks right. off." And so that's that's a, there's a number of those things that have happened. We've actually been on the forefront in our company of actually teaching the regulators the difference between these plants and how to look at them and you know, and essentially the banking regulation. So FDIC, FFIC, and we've been right there in the middle of it. But but yeah, to answer your question, that's that's got positive movement on the hemp and CBD side. Um, and again, the legality federally and state is aligned now, right? So the bankers right. can bank it. Now, that doesn't mean a banker understands how to do that or understands right. the risk and the mitigations for that. And, you know, we see some bankers who are like, hey, it's legal, no big deal. Right. But what if that farmer grows mm -hmm. a marijuana crop? What if accidentally it goes hot? What are you doing? Well, well, they'll tell us. Well, okay. But are you willing <laughs> to take that risk? And, and what does yeah. your examiner think about that? And, right. you know, we haven't seen enough of what the examiners think about it, like, you know, any enforcement actions. And, you know, quite honestly, that could come. So there is a balance, right? Um, the way I explain to my banks is, you know, look, you can ask 10 questions or you can ask 180. It's your risk preference. But we kind of recommend about 40 questions in the middle that really help you cover the, the gamut of the risk elements of this kind of business. Right? So I can imagine if I was a farmer and I had been growing some other kind of crops. So I'm an experienced, I'm not just jumping into this at the last minute. I, my, maybe my family's been farming for generations. You know, I'm a third generation farmer. And now I, I start to educate myself about hemp and I think, hey, I'm in a, I'm in a place where the laws and my soil type and weather and, you know, all of these things align. So I should, I should, you know, I should take a look at this. I'm going to, I'm going to go uh, get into this and I go, you know, have a conversation with the, my banker and, and, and maybe it's not fruitful. Then I have to go to a, another banker. I wind up having conversations with eight different, you know, bankers and I have to give them paperwork and, you know, explain, and, and I, I'm doing all this stuff over and over and over again. Somehow in here, I got to believe that what you're doing with risk out has, 
has come into play to say, look, farmers need a banking relationship. Bankers need to legitimately help their customers or, or get new customers who are agribusiness people who are getting into the hemp business. But because of the number of difficulties and manual processes and so forth, here's where some real innovation happens that I think that you've uh, jumped on with Risk Scout. So maybe just start with, again, a 10,000 foot view of kind of what Risk Scout is doing in this whole area, and then we'll drill down on some of those. Yeah, and so let me take you from the, the customer view. So if I'm a community bank or credit union across the country, you know, I probably have, you know, a billion dollar and below is probably one or two BSA um, employees, right? BSA, banks, you know, bank secrecy, secrecy yeah, right. The, 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 the compliance people in the background, right? Now you're in charge with the entire bank. So everything in terms of compliance. And now your, your CEO says, hey, you know, we've got 20 existing customers and I want to go bank another 40 hemp businesses, you know, because it's legal. And, you know, they're sitting there going, well, I think I have to, well, first of all, they go, I don't know what I need to ask, right? So we help on that side with just the consulting of the compliance program. But let's, let's get into, okay, now they need 35 questions, 40 questions from each business, and they have to monitor them every quarter or every, you know, semi-annual basis, right? You know, with the, that's called enhanced due diligence, high-risk monitoring, you know, just to feel like the examiner is going to, you know, give them a check mark for, for doing this new business. How do you do that with two people, maybe 60 businesses and growing? And so what's happened is there's a lot of manual work, Excel files and, you know, um, faxes and emails. And, you know, not to mention, Dave, like we're in an age right now where where people aren't walking in the branch. Either your branch is closed right. or your branch is reduced traffic. So how are they going to bring, you know, an inch of manila folder, you know, materials to your bank? Right. right. And so what we've done is we've created, you know, essentially kind of like where mortgage was over the last 20 years. You used to walk in and hand someone a big folder of all your pay stubs and everything for a mortgage. And now you can pretty much apply with with most banks across the country, even do it on your phone. Right. And so we've taken this arduous process, first of all, made it super efficient and very, um, you know, aligned with the workflow for that compliance in that bank specifically. So standard compliance, but also allow them to configure the system to ask for the right things and to follow that that repeatable periodic workflow. So let me uh, stop right here and say, if I was a farmer in Central Texas and I wanted to grow hemp and uh, and I was a risk scout, I went into risk scout and I answered these 40 questions, submitted these documents, whatever. And then let's say there were eight financial institutions that were in the general area there in Central Texas that were connected with risk scout. Does that mean that whatever that information, the questions that were asked, automatically is available to those eight? In other words, I don't have to go give all this information to bank one and bank two and bank three, that that they would all have access to it. Yeah, not, not exactly. It kind of works in reverse. We work for the banks. So we, okay. we put the systems in at the community bank. But what can happen is the banker says, hey, well, I also do CBD merchant processing and I have insurance. And we're like, great. And maybe even a loan. Well, those are different application sets, right? Well, it, it, again, if I take that manila folder and I'm asking uh, my customer to fill these forms out, usually if you ask for four products, you're filling out four sets of forms. And then if you multiply all of these additional questions for hemp, that's really, really a lot of duplication. So what we've done is we've said, hey, if you go and apply to a bank and you have, you know, you can kind of do the Google forms and save your profile so you can apply to their merchant processing, insurance and so forth. Now, we do have businesses. Actually, Dave, yesterday was at six businesses that reached out to my my original marketplace site looking for a bank. Right. Right. And we do have these businesses. And what we do do, we, we find a matching process. We say, well, where are you? Are you cash heavy? 
Um, you know, what are your attributes of your business? And then we, we match them for free to any of our banks that we know that are, that are supporting those programs. Okay. We do that because of, because of my family, because I know my dad would be stuck <laughs> in that same situation. <laughs> and, right. you know, it's sad, David, because those guys reach out back out to us and they go, how much do we owe you for that? <laughs> you owe me nothing, right? Just go, right. go get your account with a good bank. Right. right. Um, and it, you know, you know, why is that happening? Because they're getting kicked out. The, the banks don't right. know how to deal with it, you know? Right. So, right. yeah. Oh, okay. So we, we have different processes here. So what we've talked about mostly is this onboarding. How does a bank do all of the dotted I's and cross T's necessary in order to bank this hemp farmer? But, but let's say they've, they, they've used risk out and they've, they've successfully gotten all the information they need. They've, they've got their compliance, you know, system all set up with risk out help. Now the farmer is going to go and start, start working on his crop. What's the ongoing process? What's the how does risk out help the bank? I mean, the farmer's got, you know, uh, work boots and dungarees. He's out in the field. The banker's got a suit on and he's sitting in the office. What's going on on an ongoing basis to, to keep track of all of these ongoing issues, not the least of which is this 0.3 THC level? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And where we've actually innovated. So, you know, you talk to your, your theme of your show here is, you know, compliance has always been, especially at banks, insurance companies, it's always been the back group, the back office, the, the right. business hardly ever interacts with them. And what's changed when you get into higher risk businesses, and, and we don't just do you know cannabis related, we have money services businesses, ATMs, even cryptocurrency businesses, we help with banks. Those types of businesses aren't just give me two IDs in your formation paperwork and right. you know, and don't send any wires to Russia, right? It's, that's what a traditional <laughs> business is, right? right? Like these businesses require care feeding, but most importantly, monitoring and when something comes up, like maybe uh, maybe Dave Dave's farm here has an adverse issue, so adverse media pops up, say David grew hot, or his, his you know you could see the fire of his crops, you know that the that the uh, the state you know had to destroy, right? So that comes up, you know the bank needs to know about that, and they need to deal with it not only from a financial perspective, of course, because that's an impact to David's um, income, but also because it's it's violating um, you know some right. of those thresholds of the license, and so if he gets his license pulled. You know the bank has to deal with that, right? And so what we do is we're you know we're that whole um, onboarding, of course, but then the compliance and communication platform. So right. when something like that comes up, even if it comes up from a you know a BSA system like Yellowhammer or Brigo, you know one of those backend transaction systems, you can bubble it up, and uh, instead of you know picking up the phone, calling the branch manager, calling the farmer, or getting your suit on and going out there, you can actually send them a request and say, hey, Dave, I, I need your updated license or I need um, your disposal report for this for this situation. Um, and likewise, David can send that to you proactively. Now, we're super concerned about David's time. David's out in the field. He doesn't want to be on some website somewhere having to or some phone call or faxing a bunch of stuff in. And I've heard directly from farmers on this. We we actually be, allow them to do that from their phone so they can get an alert says, David, nice. um, I need a picture of your field or GPS locations right. and you can hit Okay, great. And answer that compliance issue, put it down and get back on the tractor. How does a farmer even test for this point three? What What is the mechanism? Do they have like a little, you know, like you go to a doctor today, they just shoot your temperature or whatever. Is there some magic wand they can wave and figure out the THC level? Yeah, unfortunately, there's no magic wand. Um, and, and the first person <laughs> develops an iPad that law enforcement yeah. everyone else can use will be, will be a billionaire. Okay, everyone, if you're out there looking for an idea to innovate, here it is. Here it is. You walk into almost any uh, doctor's office, but a lot of other businesses uh, do the same thing. They've got like a little handheld device. They point it at your forehead. They click the button and it tells them what your temperature is. So this is what we're going to do. You got to 
could develop a, a similar type of device that you can point at whatever the flower of a of a hemp plant and instantly see the THC level. Go get busy. Apparently, you'll be a billionaire. We um, there are different testing third party labs, and not only do they test for you know the chemicals and metallics in the soil, they'll test the THC. And the, the, the lowest cost machine, I mean, there's machines in the $400,000 range, but the forty fifty thousand dollars uh, HPLC machine is essentially testing THC you know, levels. It's about the size of a laser printer. And the farmer can buy those if they have a big operation and test consistently, or they can work with a good partner and send what, the testing results in. What do they actually put in there? A, a piece, a, a leaf, a piece of the plant? How, what goes in there? Actually, it's a really good point, right? The amount of material you put in and the specific material can really change your THC profile. Sure especially also if you grab from a stressed plant. But generally, they're taking a sample like what a, a actual tested, you know, state certified right. person would do. Right. Um, so, and then they're, they're testing that. Again, I, I think all the time about, I do a lot of work with a branch transformation. What should banks be doing with their branches? They don't need them for, for transactions. And, you know, they've been, they, they've been closed. Everyone seems to figure out how they can do their, <laughs> do their transactions without going to the branch. But it would seem to me if a, if a financial institution was sort of agribusiness oriented, had a lot of these farmers, is it possible that they might get one of these machines and as a service to their farmers, as a way to say, hey, if you're going to be a hemp farmer, bank with us because we've got this equipment, you can bring your samples in here and run them. Is that, is that, a, is that doable? They could absolutely do that. You know, the, the community bank's been the center sort of, of Main Street for a long time. You know, we used to build websites in the old Q2 and QUB days where we'd put, you know, the community, you know, recreational center events right. on the web page, right. right? So I could definitely see that. I think the, the trust that a farmer has to have with the bank is that if that testing is, is maybe not correct, maybe they grabbed the wrong plan or there's something there that that they work together and that that's not sent off to the state or not shared, right. you know, directly with law enforcement. And, and that might be an issue for some of the banks. Right. So I think there's an education and a trust level that has to yeah. happen there, but there are groups. Um, there's even a group here in Austin, uh, ionization labs that's working to create more cost effective centers, you know, where a business can walk in and get their testing and not have to own all that equipment. Right, right. Nice. Uh, I just think about all businesses should be thinking about how to, to reinvent themselves. Obviously, you've created something here with Risk Scout that's, we've been talking about it as hemp, but as you mentioned, really any what a banker would call a high-risk business, money service business, marijuana-related business, and so forth, that, that what you're doing gives them the, the ability to do all of the things they need to do to properly vet their customer, to follow all the rules and regulations, and do all of the normal things that they would do as a as a banker if it was a, any kind of commercial loans. So all you know, all of those things kind of have to come together. But but the banks themselves are going to have to rethink what is the purpose for this facility, this building on Main Street, or you know that that branch out there, and certainly ones that are in an ag-related area you know, probably should be looking at services that would directly benefit farmers, whether that's, you know, advanced telemetry into the USDA where they can come in and they've got a little agribusiness center and they've got, you know, information about weather and crops and they can do soil samples and this, you know, testing hemp. You know, I don't think bankers would even today think that that's even a consideration but I, I see that as really the future, that you don't need a branch to do transactions, but it should be a hub for people to come in, get education, you know, collaborate with, you know, with peers, learn about new things, even on the on the consumer side. So uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be advocating for hemp testing stations now at the, <laughs> at the community bank. All right. We got just a few minutes, Justin. Put your 
Karnak hat on. There's a all the millennials and, and will not know what that reference is. Uh, look into the future and say, okay, based on where we are right now with Risk Scout, if if you look down the road three years, four years, five years into the future, what do you see happening in terms of the the kinds of high risk businesses and the kinds of things that you think will likely change and how Risk Scout is pivoting and moving to address those. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll start from where you just were, which is, you know, community banks and credit unions have to bank their community. They have to be relevant to their community to survive. They can't, you know, compete with the Bank of America cost structures, right, or technology. They can look for some of those things through groups like that we've been involved in. But at the end of the day, they have to bank their community and they have to be relevant to their community. And that's where they went. And, and in the future, you know, I've been doing this, you know, product and, and sort of e-banking for a long, long time, business experience. I'm a, I'm a very strong believer that in order to compete in the future now, you need to tailor your, especially your business banking solutions to the businesses you're serving, right? Whether that's commercial construction, hemp businesses, you know, you, you name it, right? Understand those businesses and provide solutions that, that matter for them. And so I think the innovation is twofold. I think it's provide features, you know, for like, like I'm a farmer, I don't need currency exchange, right? <laughs> I just, I just don't need it. You know, I'm not doing Forex, right? Right. But, um, Provide those solutions, these types of things, these testing labs, and and and, and uh, like above all, provide multiple ways for them to reach you. Right, that branch and that coffee machine, yeah, that's great. That's a place for them to come in the community. But more and more, whether it's COVID or or you know something else, people are using electronic means. Have right. a really good digital experience. You know, grow that that collaboration as if you are sitting there in the room with them. But make that personable and make it easy. And you will win as a community bank. I mean, I've been a part of it. I know community banks out there are buying branches back from Bank of America. Probably a bit of a boondoggle for Bank of America. They try to take all those customers with them. But they're, they're, they're replanting the flag of the community bank in a branch in their small town. Great. Well, that's not enough. Just to be there is not enough. You need to know your customer and, and really, you know, um, provide solutions based on that relationship. You know, you can't shake hands and say, we're here to be your relationship and then not be able to provide relevant solutions. So that's my innovation story on fintech is if you're a community bank, figure out the things your community and your market needs and, and deliver on this. Awesome. 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 Well, listen, we uh, we have been chatting here with Justin Fishery, CEO of Risk Scout. Justin, I can only imagine that Risk Scout is going to catch on fire and this thing is going to grow. And I, I see nothing but great success for your company. If people want to reach out to you, uh, you know, IDG listeners and saying, well, hey, I want to get in touch with Justin. How can they reach you? Yeah. So first and foremost, can come to our website, www.riskout.com. And, you know, you can reach me directly anytime. Send me questions at justin at riskout.com. Awesome. Listen, I want to thank Justin Fisher, CEO of Risk Scout, for spending time with us today. Uh, th- there is innovation happening everywhere. And, you know, uh, uh, one thing that just fascinates me is how uh, advanced farmers are in their innovation. People tend to think of farmers as being sort of, you know, uh, that you know they're out there with you know, with a donkey and a plow or whatever else, but but they are really advanced uh, and and have you know tractors that are tied in with GPS satellites and so forth, and so we need to have innovation in the financial services realm and all of these other things that aligns that and that is what appears Risk Scout is doing. So Justin, thanks again for your time today. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 
Well, I hope you got some great insights out of that interview with uh, Justin Fisher. And listen, you know, we go to great lengths to make these podcasts interesting for you. So there's no telling how much money I had to pay to get that farm tractor to go right outside the window of where I was recording the podcast right at the time that I was talking about how advanced farmers were. Pretty, uh, pretty cool trick, right? Don't you think? Hey, thanks again. We'll have you back on an upcoming podcast again real soon. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at DP Speaks and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon. Thank you.